out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 78th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network of Shows, about 100 different shows on all sorts of genres of music with some great hosts who really know their stuff, some amazing guests really talking about anything you might want to learn more about it. You can learn more about Pantheon Pods at Pantheon Pods or www.pantheonpodcast.com. And speaking of Pantheon Pods, this week we're going to be speaking with one of our Pantheon Podcast brethren, Mr. Paul Stevenson, who has a really killer show, Vintage Rock Pod. Paul is a rock DJ who's been in the game for a long time, and he has some killer guests on his show. I mean, members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, members of bands that you know and love. He has them on weekly, usually on Mondays is when he has his interviews. Now, the rest of the week, Tuesday through Sunday, he also has a really fun This Day Rocks show, which is about five, six, seven minutes. Kind of gives you just a little detail about events that may have happened on this day in rock history. Talk about people's birthdays. And then he'll have guests on, whether it's musicians or members of bands who are on his main show, or maybe even guests like me. I've been on the show several times and will be again here coming up soon. Just a fun way for me to start my day, whether it's with your morning cuppa or it's at the end of the day or just whenever you've got a break. I highly recommend listening to Paul. He's got a wonderful voice. He's very knowledgeable and is a super nice guy. The reason we're having Paul on today is to talk about one of my very favorite bands, my favorite band of the last 30 years, and that's Oasis. Now, Oasis couldn't be bigger over here. They talk about Oasis over here like the, the second coming of the Beatles. And I don't think you can tell the story of Oasis without the UK perspective. Now, in fairness, I wasn't into Oasis when they first broke in America in the early to mid-90s. I was still very much a classic rock guy at that point and did not love what my colleagues the same age were listening to at the time. So I overlooked them. But the story of Oasis is not just about the music. It's about a cultural shift here in the UK that was going on politically, socially, artistically, all around the UK, and the real headpiece, the talisman for all of that were Oasis. Not only was their music fantastic, the great guitar and songwriting of Noel Gallagher and the cocksure, melodic vocals of Liam Gallagher, but just their attitude. Talk about how great they were all the time. I think it gave Brits a sense of, yes, we are still a great country. We do still have a lot of say in what goes on here. And these are the lads that are going to help us take us into the new millennium. And my American friends never really understand why I love Oasis so much. Well, it's because their songs are fantastic. The melody, the chord changes, the lyrics, and the evolution of them over time. I think it's all great. Plus, the lads are touring this summer. Not Oasis, but individually, Noel and Liam are both touring. And I am going to get to see Noel. I don't think I'm going to be able to get to see Liam, but you never know. And so you can't tell the story to an American about how great Oasis are without the UK perspective. And that's what Paul is going to bring to us today, because he was one of those teenagers who was standing outside in line to get the first single off the new album or to get the new album the day it was released. Went to see them live. He and his mates started a band because of Oasis, because their songs are not only catchy, they're fairly simple. So you can learn them in an afternoon. And I don't think he was the only one. I think that was a phenomena around the UK at the time, all thanks to Oasis. Now, before we get into that, 
We want you to tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf and at actionjack72. And make sure you download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, be it Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play. Good Pods is a great way to meet independent podcasters to find which podcasts are best for you. So come on, you know, it's time to talk about Oasis in the UK versus the US with Paul from Vintage Rock Pod right here on The Wolf. Yeah, and welcome to the Ugly American Werewolf in London, Mr. Paul Stevenson of Vintage Rock Pod and This Day Rocks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And I love, I love the new This Day Rocks, man. I mean, it's, uh, it's a great way to start off your day, you know, remind you of what the date is, understand maybe whose birthday it is or who died on that date, and then you get a little information, a little fun chat with somebody about something that happened on this day in rock. It's only about five or six minutes. Good with your morning cuppa, I think. I, I like it a lot, and I love being on it with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to be on a few episodes that you've you've guested on. It's always nice to get different people's opinions, and uh, I get lots of different people's opinions, lots of different podcasters. We have writers, we have authors, we have um, guests themselves. Obviously, I've got a big bag catalog of interviews, so I like to take little clips of that. So it doesn't take up much of your day, so it's just nice to, to put out there every single day for some yeah no we appreciate it yeah it was interesting you know you said you were going to be on there uh and i said six minute show what is this all about it's it's really yeah it's really cool it's a it's a, a little uh like you said it's a warm-up you get a little information you get somebody's point of view yeah i like it and then you're ready to start your day now i know what now i'm in the know oh thank you very much it's lovely to hear it's nice feedback but uh yeah it was just one of those things that i thought would be quite quite nice to, to add along to the the big interview shows that i do and it's just something that kind of can fill a gap whether it's just before you go to sleep or whether mm-hmm. the first thing you do in the morning or it's your coffee break at work or whatever it is it's just nice and easy to to fit into your day and a, a bit of nice rock content for you indeed no it's it's a lot of fun and we appreciate you coming on here today you know Part of our show, Ugly American Werewolf, was it's not just my adventures as an expat in London, is <laughs> and and me and Jackson talking about stuff that we've loved our whole lives. But it's really about the UK perspective as a fan versus what we experienced in the US growing up kind of throughout our lives. And if you look at our shows, I was look I just went ahead and did this last night. It was like sixty-five percent of them or so were on UK bands, and then you know we have some compilation and year-end shows, so it might actually be more than that. But we we're kind of Anglophiles in what we love. However, we don't have the same experience. Like a show we did earlier, you know, like a month ago, we talked about the Simple Minds in America to most fans. The Simple Minds are one song in one movie, maybe two songs. Over here in 1985, as you would say, people are like. You two in Simple Minds, who's bigger? Who's going to reign as champions? We're in the U.S. It's like, you two play stadiums. Simple Mind might play a club somewhere, you know? It's like, but why? Simple Minds are awesome, you know? They have dozens of great hits. And you can't tell the story of Oasis, who is one of my favorite bands, my very favorite band of the last 30 years, without the U.K. perspective and without the history of what was happening in the UK culturally. Yes. And in that time leading up really to Nebworth, there there are two great documentaries on Oasis. Supersonic, which kind of takes them from childhood and starting the band up until playing Nebworth in 96. And then Oasis Nebworth movie, which basically follows, you know, about a dozen different fans 
plus the band on that day, basically. You know, what it meant to get the tickets, how, you know, two and a half million people put in for... For two hundred and fifty thousand tickets, and how how could a band that only has two records sell more tickets than Pink Floyd did a few years before there? You know, how does that even make sense? It is. It's absolutely baffling. But I think, like you said, you have to immerse yourself in that time period. They were. They joked about being as big as the Beatles and things like that. But to be honest, living in the UK at the time, it was it was cool Britannia. It was girl power. It was Britpop. Everything seemed like we were the centre of the universe at that point. And the centre of the centre of the universe were these feuding Mancunian brothers who were on the front page of every tabloid newspaper every right. day with something, whether they were saying something disgustingly outrageous where they had to issue groveling apologies or whether they were seen falling out of clubs with Kate Moss or Mm -hmm. you know you know what I mean they were they were everything they were the archetypal rock stars they came from nothing they were just the biggest things in the world which if I can just ask a quick question of you Mm -hmm. I mean Oasis I mean at the time we we could never understand how they didn't make it in America why they didn't really break America so why do you like them? What was the fascination for you? Okay, so I have to be perfectly honest with you. At the time, when they're breaking, 93, 94, 95, Jackson and I are in college together. I'm ignoring them, okay? <laughs> at, at that time, I, I'm not into them. And I've said this on other shows before. You know, Jackson and I were into very classic rock. We're in like, you know, the 70s Stones phase at that point, you know, and, and the Stones came back in 94 and toured, you know. Uh, the 90s kind of became a bit of a revival for a lot of bands. You know, like the Eagles were never going to get back together. Well, in 1994, they did, and then they started touring, right? The Stones toured on Voodoo Lounge. Jimmy Page and Robert Plant got back together to do Unleaded, and then they did a couple tours. We saw them in 96 when... Oasis is breaking out with these huge shows at Nebworth. Kiss got back together with the original members. Kiss was the biggest tour of 1996 in America, you know. And so that's kind of where we were. And I was just, I was biased towards, you know, if people my age like it, it must suck. Okay, because people my age made new kids on the block possible. And I hated that, you know, it was like, I, I, I couldn't stand that stuff, right? So I'm like, if you like it, if girls my age like it, it couldn't be that good. So I just kind of ignored it. Not to mention, at the time, you know, these guys, first of all, every fourth or fifth word out of their mouth is fuck or cunt or shit or something nasty. They don't dress like rock stars. They've got two huge unibrows between the two of them. Bonehead's bald at 23 years old. It's like, these aren't rock stars, you know? And, and that was just kind of my take. I don't know, what do you say to all that, Jackson? Well, I, I remember when the, the first single dropped. I think, the, or the, the one that I remember the best was Supersonic. And it dropped, and mm-hmm. I was like, I really like this. This sounds good. It was, it was kind of, it, it was mean. It had a great guitar riff to it. And who are these guys? Oasis from from England. Okay, well, you know, like you said before, Mac, we we were all we like English bands. All right, let's give these guys a whirl. Cigarettes and alcohol was a great tune, also. Love it. Okay, then they put out uh, what's the story, and it was like, oh, now they went like poppy. You know, they, <laughs> they, that that was the one that kind of moved away from me. And then there was the whole thing about that MTV. Uh, I think it was MTV concert where Liam was sick. Yeah. And they went on without him. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, now he's in the balcony and he's got the drink. And I'm like, okay, the wheels are coming off this thing. This is a train wreck. 
you know, people were like, are they the new Beatles? Well, now, wait a minute. They only have one album out. How could they be the new Beatles? So I think in America, maybe they got turned off by, you know, yeah, they weren't really, they didn't have the classic rock star look. Yeah. They were always at each other's throats. <laughs> it, yeah. It, it might've just been a little bit too much. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, now they're partying with Kate Moss. Who do these guys think they are? <laughs> Uh, so I think that was it for me anyway, that was kind of where I got turned off to them, but then going back and listening to the stuff kind of after the fact, you'd see how great they really were. So good. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just the way that they could put the songs together. And, and when you kind of listen to them and, and I'm going to ask you this question, Paul, was there, do you think there was a vacuum at the time in the UK? Like, and so, so they were basically at the, at the right the right moment at the right time when people said, yes, this is exactly what we're looking for. Kind of like rewind a couple of years in the United States, uh, Nirvana in 1991. Yes, it kind of yeah. sounded like everybody was like, hey, wait a minute. This mm -hmm. is it. This is what we want. It kind of seemed like watching some of the documentary stuff about Oasis. It was kind of that way in the UK. Yeah, you it was almost said, like this is this is our movement. This is mm -hmm. something that we right. own. This is coming from ours. And it's not your toffs. It's, they're not university students these are guys off the streets that have, are playing fantastic music the likes of which we haven't heard for a long time and mm -hmm. they have the attitude and that sort of stuff so i think you are right there definitely and i i don't know i i kind of associated almost with like the cultural revolution that happened in the 60s in the u.s almost it, it's kind of like it, post world war ii it was very picket fence mom and pop through the 50s and then at the end of the 60s these kids are growing up it's like no i'm not doing it just because that's the way you used to do it i'm not doing it just because you told me that i'm not trusting the government just because they said no it's just an exercise in vietnam kind of thing and i feel like that was something happening happening over here that we didn't really catch on to yes. right it's like we're getting out of thatcherism tony blair is coming in young yeah. people are starting to feel themselves Cool Britannia, you had fashion coming back. You had movies with like train spotting and, and Guy Ritchie's coming up, you know, and, and, and you've got, there were a lot of different bands in it, but it was like Oasis were the pinnacle of it. And, and this kind of stuff that might have turned people off for like the press are like, oh, these are bad boys. And people are like, oh, no, we shouldn't pay attention. Now everyone's like soaking that up like, yeah, these are our lovely lad bad boys. This is what it's all about. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, if you look through culturally at that time, you, you mentioned Thatcherism. John Major came in. So again, that's conservative government. But kind of by 97, we're into Labour and everything's changed. It's new Labour. We're talking about Oasis being the leaders of Britpop. And it's no coincidence that Noel had the the, the the GB flag on his guitar and that was an iconic visual That's of right. the movement as well. Probably the same as the, the girl power movement with Jerry or the Spice Girls. She had mm -hmm. the, the Brit dress as well and that was seen as something that was quite... But culturally within um, society, things were changing. It was your 1830s lads holidays. There was the Ladette movement as well. I mean, you look at the, the biggest radio station in the, in the UK, BBC Radio 1, was then presented, the breakfast show, the biggest show was presented by um, a female. Zoe Ball came in during the 90s and, mm -hmm. and she was married to Fat Boy Slim. And it was all the, the whole, like you said, the, the time of the 60s, it was, was a, ch a period of change. The period of change in the 90s was definitely um, a revolution from the, the, the mean and ogre of Thatcher in the 80s and everything that went right. on to being the loutish, over the top, let's go hedonistic because all the dance movement as well, you, you kind of forget that was right. early 90s was coming through and you've got all the acid and the raves and all that sort of stuff that was going on. So it was, it was, I think it was a way of society kicking back and saying, no, we want something different. And 
that that the Gallagher brothers were something different indeed and they they led that whole Britpop movement and you said there's a lot of other bands there there's a lot of other great bands there um, Castor a band um, Ocean Colour Scene or another great band there was um, others that kind of fit into that mould as well like the Blue Tones and mm-hmm. the Charlatans and all these sorts of bands that came and maybe slightly before that the Stone Roses too and right. yeah, it was just a whole movement Cooler Shaker people like these that all came through at the same time and that was that was kind of part of the problem that we had in the in the US you know I mentioned Nirvana and all of the um the grunge bands it was kind of like the they were they were seen as authentic and they were seen as you know guys who could rock but it was really kind of depressing like there wasn't <laughs> right they, they were like guys like eddie vetter and chris cornell and um you know Kirk Lane Cobain, Staley, they were all yeah. Rock, yeah they were all rock stars but like let's face it liam gallagher is a rock star yeah he is. you want somebody who is just like what is he doing now i can't oh my goodness he's yeah he's <laughs> falling down he can't play because he has laryngitis now he's drunk he's on the, right. you know that's that's what you when it when it's working for you it's fantastic when it works against you i can only imagine like what the rest of the band went through but that's what you want out of a rock star that is truly somebody that you can don't ever be like this guy but you know you want to <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and i think the whole band did fall through that sort of thing because like so bonehead and Griggsy, they did fall out pretty quickly and there, there was obviously substances in the background that was being used by everybody and and things like that so it, it definitely was something that the whole band immersed themselves in and it was the scene at the time perhaps for them well, guys but you got it you got to figure too i mean like you said these were just guys from a working class family yes right yeah. and they put this band together and all of a sudden you're in you know you're in the stratosphere there what do i do now i don't understand i've got a lot of downtime there's a lot of people that want to know me all of a sudden women who would never talk to me in a million years can't <laughs> wait to get in line more you know your head just explodes and i think at a, at a part at a certain time you just get to the point where you're like you know what i am a rock star yeah. and i deserve yes. all this and i can do whatever i want and then that's when the wheels really come off <laughs> yeah no you're right i mean but but i want to talk about noel's songwriting because now i consider noel one of the greatest rock songwriters of all time and and that second record What's the story, Morning Glory? The, the record itself isn't even the whole story. Those 10 or 11 songs, whatever it is, there's a whole nother album's worth of quote-unquote B-sides or CD singles that, again, yes. yeah. that's not really part of all culture in America. Yes, we had CD singles, okay. but they, they were kind of collector's items. They didn't really sell that well, and, and most people did really, oh, the new single's out, let's go out and get it. No, you buy the album, and basically all the singles are going to be on there kind of thing. So it's it's part of their See, that's strategy. where Oasis yeah. did Oasis did so so well because I was one of those teenagers that was out buying every single single whether I had the album which I did whether I had the album or not I went out and bought the the single because it had three other tracks on there. Now back then the three other tracks were for, for other bands, other acts, they were maybe a remix, a dance version, a demo. There maybe was a, a live a version, yeah. Song. Yes, that sort of thing. Whereas Oasis, every single single had three new songs that you hadn't heard before. And whether they were offshoots from albums they didn't they didn't make the album or whether it was just something they were playing around with all the the, the b-sides stack up and one of my favorite oasis songs is a b-side head shrinker it's just it's a really strong nihilistic kind of rock wall of sound sort of song um but that's why they came out with a master plan with all mm-hmm. the, the the b-sides on there as well and that sold just as well as, as any of their other albums or studio albums as they'd be labeled 
Yeah, no, rocking chair. Amazing chord changes in that. And it's, it's telling a story that we can all kind of relate to. I'm older than I wish to be. This town holds <laughs> no more for me. I, I get that, you know. Universal stuff. He, you know, they come to America. They play the whiskey a go-go to, to kind of launch themselves in America. Uh, but they scored a bunch of crystal meth they thought was cocaine. Uh, <laughs> it keeps them up for a few days. They can't really play the show. They have to start and stop the show, which is so Bush League. <laughs> And then Noel's like, forget it. You guys, I'm out of here. I, he splits for a few days. Well, he comes back. But in those few days, he writes, talk tonight. It's like, the guy couldn't yep. miss during this time. Yep. You know, first album, second album, huge. He was just on fire. And I think that the, the beauty of his songwriting is the simplicity of it, man. Back in the 90s, everybody wanted to learn the guitar. Everyone picked up a guitar. I started a band. I was in a band. We all did that. We covered Morning Glory was one of the songs that we covered. But it was one of those that you pick up a guitar and within half an hour, you could probably play an Oasis song mm -hmm. because the chords themselves were really simple. The chord progressions were really simple. The solos, let's be honest, they're not Jimmy Page. They are really simple as well, but it's the fact that the melody and the hook of the songs and the, and the wall of sound that's created because there was two guitarists and a mm -hmm. bass player. And it was this, you listen to the, the bigger songs. They are just epic. They, they fill your ears. There's, there's no blank bits in there. There's obviously the odd quieter song, but a lot of their big songs are really, really atmospheric and you, and they, they, they enclose you when, it, when you listen to the songs, which I find really, really good. But as you said, with his songwriting, it's just something that he, he's won many awards, Ivan Avellos, that sort of thing for his songwriting abilities. And a lot of them do stand the test of time, which is all you can ask for as a songwriter. That's right. But, you know, one thing that they did point out, I believe it was on the Supersonic uh, documentary, was when they recorded the second record, Liam was knocking it out of the park with his vocals. Like he, they mm -hmm. said he would get the, he would do it in one take. He knew the phrasing, he knew the words. So really, I think that while a lot of the credit does go to Noel for being the songwriter and kind of the, the, the chief, the, yeah, the chief of the band and, and where Liam's, I think legacy gets a lot dragged into the, you know, other activities. He really is a, he is a great singer, great front man. When he's on, he is yes. really good at what he does. When and, he's and on is he, the key. Well, <laughs> right. that's the thing. And, and there was a thing too about how uh, Noel was, he was away as a roadie and he comes back and the, and their mom says, Oh yeah, he, they started a band. What do you mean he started a band? Yeah, he can't, can't sing. sing. <laughs> well, actually he can really sing. He's, he's actually pretty good at this. So it, I think that, uh, to your point, I think all the, all the ingredients lined up for this band, you know, they had, the, yeah. they had the, they had the front guy, they had the voice, they had the songs, they, they just had everything to be at the right place at the right time to yes. launch them. And, and I think there is something to be said for a song that's a, a little bit on the simple side. I mean, we, we love ACDC, right? If you're a kid and you pick up the guitar and you mess with it a little bit, you can play, Oh, I'm playing this song now. I, I can do this. I mean, can't maybe not the but, solo well, well no <laughs> right. but you know, the, at least the original riff like there is something to connect you to it whereas you know something like a, you're not going to play you know stairway to heaven right off the bat you're just not so it makes it a little more accessible yeah 100 and just touching on the, the the point with liam there i mean i think what's the story probably was the peak and you saw in later performances later recordings that the voice had gone i think pretty early on and his style you talk about all the ingredients coming together there was there wasn't anything like liam at the time there has been since the drawl but even in the way he, he sings you mentioned the phrasing that yeah on the end of things it's mm -hmm. just so uniquely him and so uniquely oasis and 
it was just, I don't know where it came from, but it, it worked. You know, the other thing too, is I, I, I noticed that, and I don't know if this is a conscious thing with a lot of, a lot of people when they sing, they try and, I don't know if they try and get rid of an accent or I, I don't know, but it sounds like he does not. He, there, yeah, are, there are words, yeah. you are like, oh, you know, and so I don't know if that's a, if that's a conscious deal, but it definitely adds to his uniqueness in yeah. the vocal delivery. The other thing he was saying too, was that, and I know that there are a lot of singers that have this problem. The rest of the guys are, it's easy. You could be sick. You could not feel well. You pick the guitar up. You can play the guitar. If your voice is out, Hey, we got to do this show. No, you yeah. don't understand. I'm not feeling this. There's something wrong. I can't do this. And now everybody's mad at you, but, and then it's, are you really not feeling well? Or is this something else that you've done to yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And again, with the voice thing, I always wondered with the microphone placement. I mean, we, we kind of saw a bit with Lemmy, but to, to, to sing yeah. with your, your, yeah. your neck extended and pointed up the whole time, that can't be can't be easy at all. But again, it was the look. It was so iconic. The fact that he stood with his hands behind his back, yeah. mm -hmm. his head was pointed up towards a microphone that seemed to be far too high for him. It was just... it. I, I do wonder how on earth he came about singing like that. Did he approach a microphone that was too tall for him one day and think this was oh, quite like this? Or it's it's bizarre. He opens his throat, I guess, maybe yeah. to get all that sound out. I don't know. Uh, but that those nights in Nebworth, he was on and he was giving it too. I mean, there's probably some nights where he's like, ah, it's just you know a bunch of punters in a club. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. But when you see that sea of people. And you know it's for you. You he knew he had to deliver, and boy, did he ever, man! It was it was pretty amazing. I, I also, in rewatching that, felt like you know they, there's this big Beatles connection with uh, with Oasis. It's it's almost like he's channeling a, a young but pissed off John Lennon in his voice because he's not Paul McCartney, but but he's mm. kind of got that a Lennon attitude in his voice and when he holds those notes i can kind of see where all that was coming from a, a little bit yeah definitely i mean the self-admitted that they they are huge fans of the beatles and they kind of modeled themselves didn't they and, and musically on them so that could definitely be a point indeed hey this is tom and zeus from shout it out Loudcast, and you are listening to the ugly american werewolf in london rock podcast all right so tell us a little bit about where you were at that time right so we were in college we were kind of ignoring them i got really into them in the 2000s and i'm glad i did because i got into them right before they put out don't believe the truth which to me is a fantastic record it's, it's their second best in my opinion and i got to see them on that tour uh which was amazing but but tell us kind of where you were in life and, and how oasis kind of fit into do it with you yeah so i'm i'm probably the opposite way around then so i'm i'm early 40s now so when oasis were coming through i was young teens mm -hmm. and it was it was something different it was something that your parents didn't want you to listen to because of all the swearing and all the naughtiness that was going on and it's, it's the sort of thing you did queue up outside the shop for for every single and we did do that i like i said i did buy every single single i bought every album that came out i remember when be here now came out i pre-ordered the double box set of of the album at the time on vinyl now wow. vinyl in the mid 90s was not a thing that anybody wanted but no. i saw it in a magazine and it looked fantastic and i spent 30 of my hard-earned pounds on pre-ordering this album on vinyl when i don't even think i had a turntable but i wanted this <laughs> thing because it was it was what everyone had. And um, it was my first proper concert was Oasis on that Be Here Now tour as well. Um, and I remember there was me and three of my friends and we had tickets for the seating section of Arena, big arena show. And we got there really early because we wanted to get a T-shirt and all that sort of stuff. As sure. young guys, I think we were about 17, 18 by this point. So we wanted to get there and get good seats and that sort of stuff. So we, we sat there. 
And then these uh, three girls and a, a guy approached us on up the stairs and they said, we've got standing tickets. Do you want to swap? We don't fancy being in the middle of all that. And we were like, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we went right down the front for our first gig. And I, I'll never forget that they came out to um, Be Here Now, the song itself. And it was like, do, 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 do. And that was playing on a loop. It must have been three or four minutes. And the stage is dark and the anticipation's building. And then they must have all sneaked on because nobody saw them. And then the down and kicked in the whole place started jumping mm -hmm. now i'm not a tall guy i'm five foot eight now so back then i was probably five foot six or something so um <laughs> i remember being swept off my feet it's one of those where you go like that and just hold on for dear life and sure. you hope that you don't get drowned underneath a sea of feet and it was just an incredible experience and for me at the time oasis were the biggest band in the world um i hung on every word they said i bought mm -hmm. the nme religiously because they were always on the front of that my uh, i live with my grandparents they were always buying tablets and I was always looking for anything they could have, anything they that I bought the videos, the V8, there was a few VHS before then, there and then was sure. um, a live video of them at Main Road, the old Manchester City football stadium. And I remember wearing that tape out because I had it on all the time. There was another one as well. I was trying to rack my brains what it was called, but I couldn't, I couldn't remember it. There was another uh, live show that they, they brought out on VHS a few years before that. And it was just, they, they were, they were the center of everything for me, but then by the time Be Here Now had come and gone, and I think the the band's own reaction to it, because I did like the album, I, I really mm -hmm. did like the album, but Noel panned it as soon as it came out and they got through the tour and they'd sold as many copies as they could. He came out and he said, it wasn't good, I didn't write it well, over the top, blah, 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 blah. And so for me, they lost their edge. And at that stage, I'm then going off to, to university and I'm mm -hmm. thinking of different things. And so whereas you're picking them up in the early 2000s, I dropped them by this point. I'd sure. had enough. The, the, the sheen had gone. I was sick of hearing about them fighting. Right. Oh, they've broken up again, have they? Oh, yeah, look, sorry, they'll, they'll do a gig next week. It's, exactly. It got boring for me. It was, it was, it was funny. So yeah, probably the way you experienced it is the opposite. So I, I lived through the, the mania of the nineties. And then when the two thousands came, it was now nah, I've had enough. See you later. No, I hear you, you know, and that's, that's part of why I wanted to have you on. Cause you know, I'm looking at this, this beautiful book here, you know, the, the, uh, the British hit yes. singles and albums. <laughs> it's it's a, been a important resource to us here on the wolf. And it's like basically from 97 you know, uh, through into the 2000s, every record, every single, basically went to the top five, not the top 40, the top five, and basically every album went to number one. And, and of course, we heard Champagne Supernova and Wonderwall and, you know, back in the States, but they were just kind of songs on the radio. I think the first time I heard all around the world was in an AT&T commercial. They were kind of helping to sell long distance or something like that. So I'm like, okay, well, they, they've made it. They're, they're pretty big. But I was still ignoring them. So I'm like, all right, well, how did they do on the charts in America? Uh, and they've had three singles hit the top 100 wow. billboard. That's it. Three singles hit the top 100. A whole career. Wow. Their whole career. Now, there, there's, there's different charts in America, obviously. There's mainstream rock chart, and they, they would have been on that a lot more. But I'm just talking about the top, the Billboard Hot 100, which has everything, pop, rock, R&B, rap, whatever. Three, and I think it was, uh, it was Wonderwall made it to the top 40 or so. Don't Look Back in Anger may have been top 80. And then there was, there was a song that I barely even knew made it to 93 or something like that. And that was it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me for Oasis. This is a joke. You know, I mean, they're huge. No, that is interesting when you mentioned that, because I think that comes back to the question I asked you at the very start. So it was, it was 
we couldn't understand here in the UK. Obviously, we are just as you guys were in America. You're very American centric, and, mm-hmm. and what was big in America was big in the world. And, and same with us with the Cool Britannia and the Britpop. Everything seemed to be revolving around what we were doing. But it became a thing in the media and the press as well. The fact that the guys would go over to the states and they they wouldn't quite conquer it. They wouldn't get the adulation or the following or the sales or, or that that. that we felt they deserved because put away the hype, put away the mischievous behavior. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way of putting it. The, the music itself was good enough to sell. It should have been big. Right. It should have been bigger than we were in America. So it, it was a strange thing. And, and like I said, the press did ask the question why, because it was always every time they were going to go over, it was like, this is it. They're going to break America this time. And they'd come back and there'd been another falling out or something had happened and America hadn't picked it up. And it was just, it, it, it was strange because like I said, they were the big band in the world to, to us here in the UK at the time. Well, I think the problem in the United States is that we're jerks. And <laughs> if you don't, if you don't pander to us, we're kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. Like I think, because because you asked that at the beginning, I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, why didn't, why, what was the problem? I think part of it was the fighting, but I also think like, had they moved to California, yes, you know, like, it relocated. Well, okay. Well, but, oh, they, they, they were always very, very British. Very yeah, British. They yeah. never really played the game over here, even though we enjoyed the music. I think that may have led to, to some of the, the, the wall that was put up here, because it, like I said, we, we have to have, you have to buy into the American lifestyle for yeah. us to really embrace you. Right. You know, and look, they, they sold well in America. I mean, you know, it, the, the first album went platinum, be here now, went platinum. Um, what's the story? Morning Glory sold about 4 million copies. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, especially no, in, no. The, in the 90s, you know, that's, that's good stuff. But, you know, you, you sell 4 million copies, that's cool, that's, that's quadruple platinum here. Whereas, in America, rather, whereas over here, where they sold about 5 million copies, that's like 16, 17 times platinum. Not to mention, at the time, that kind of means that about every one out of 10 or 11 people in the whole nation have a copy of that. Well, in America, if one out of every 10 people have it, you know, that's thriller, man. Okay. I mean, there's not much else. There's nowhere else to go, you know? So it's not that they did poorly, despite the fact they didn't really have the top 10 singles or anything over here. 4 million records is good, but it's, it's not like having everybody on your block has one, right? Yeah. And I think that's that's the the feeling we had of Oasis at the time. I mean, definitely maybe was the biggest selling debut album of all time in the UK at the point. I think it sold ridiculous levels as well for I think it was the, the quickest selling debut mm-hmm. album as well, things like that. They had the the biggest audience for indoor gigs at Earl's Court. They had the biggest audience for the outdoor gigs at Nebworth. They had What's the Story was one of the biggest selling albums even to date. I think it's in the top five in the UK of all time. Oh sure. And then Be Here Now was one of the fastest selling albums as well. Everything it was like they were the biggest they were the best at whatever it was and then they go to america and it was like like you said i mean four million records that's incredible for anybody but it felt like that wasn't they hadn't conquered they hadn't done enough yeah and i, I had to look it up because i'm like okay well what what were we listening to you know i'm like yeah the number one selling album in america i think at least the rock album in america 94 was hootie and the blowfish you know and uh <laughs> and, and and i'll admit i had the album but i didn't have oasis at that point because I was in college, and college girls love that "Hold My Hand" song. So if I was going to have "Ladies Back to the Dorm Room," I had <laughs> to have "Crack Rear View." I looked it up, Paul. It sold 21 million copies in America alone. It's double wow. diamond, and it's a debut album. 
And and I'm like, it, that must have been a reaction to the grunge. Like the grunge was hard. And, yeah, life sucks, and people are mean to me, and I'm gonna fight through this. I'm not gonna be pretty. I'm gonna be ugly, and you're gonna like it, and all the ugly people are gonna rise up. And I think we needed something softer, maybe at that point, you know. And and, and these guys, yeah, they're all college buddies. They, I don't wanna be with you, you know. It's, it's happy little songs. They're digestible. You could listen to it with your parents around. And, and Dave Matthews was getting huge at that point, and I got sucked up into the whole Dave Matthews thing. And now I'm like, what did I ever see in <laughs> Dave Matthews? I don't get it. You know, I, I I went to see him six times, and the last time I'm like, what is wrong with me, man? I you know, I but but you know, it, these trends happen, and what's popular, you know, it, it, with people of a certain age, you kind of get swept up in it. So I think the whole we're the bad, the baddest band in the world, and we're gonna cuss and do drugs and date Patsy Kensett in your face and all that stuff. I think people are kind of like, can we do a little something else now? Enough. I, I don't Enough, know. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you can't mention Oasis without mentioning Blur, and I think Blur are probably what you're talking about there. It's the, it's the other side of the coin. They were the the college kids. They did come out with the the quirky songs like Country House and. Uh, park life and all that sort of stuff and they were just as big as oasis not quite as big but they they, they still had huge hits and huge following but again mm -hmm. it was like they were the the cleaner cut guys you know what i mean they had they looked quite nice they looked like they were probably studying art at university that right. sort of stuff whereas the, the gallagher brothers certainly weren't at any university at all <laughs> no that's for sure but you had the because blur I couldn't tell you one Blur song. Blur was non-existent to us wow. in the United States. Not the Stone Roses had one big record that kind of came before. The Verve, you know, had some some hits. You know, oh, yeah, of Love course, Verve, yeah. yeah, you know. But yeah, it's just it's weird to me who makes it and who doesn't. And sometimes I always tend to blame like the A and R people. Like they just dropped the ball. They didn't know what they were doing or they didn't get them on MTV or whatever, you know, they did their wrong. But it's obviously there's a lot more to it than that. And it's, it's a lot about timing and culture yes. and that kind of thing. And it's just, it's a bit of magic that nobody has uh, the recipe for. Yes, if only. If only you could bottle didn't it. Blur make a that song, wasn't uh, Blur do that song, that song number two? It's like song two, yeah. Song two, yeah. right? That's a pretty good. I crank that one up still. That's that still yeah. rips it up. But yeah, they they never made it. And, and like you said, the Stone Roses. I remember one. They had a single out on college radio that never hit. Wow. I don't know. I, I think it is a cultural thing, but I think it is mm -hmm. also like what what are they going to push? And I thought about that. I thought about that for a long time when I have sit alone with my thoughts in the dark, <laughs> which I probably shouldn't. But. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when when Smells Like Teen Spirit hit on MTV. They played it every oh my God. 14 minutes. But then I got to thinking, if you did that with any song, would it would it work? Like if you just played it to the point where it's like it's just in your I don't know. I I was never in Nirvana. That was never my that was never my scene, but I just really wonder how some songs make it like that and some songs don't. Do you think why doesn't everybody know, you know, this particular song? This is way better. They mm -hmm. should be playing it way more. I don't understand the formula. Yeah. I think like you say, it is culture. I think it is. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, I'm, and so I think I, a lot of it, a lot of it too is, is just, is just like you were saying, Mac before, just everything lines up. Like it's just the time. What are people looking for? You know, even if it's like an album that maybe came out that you missed for whatever reason, it just got, it got swept under the rug or it got, it was just in the ether with everything else. And yeah, why wasn't this a bigger record? Because people weren't ready to hear it at that time, at least where you were. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and I'm just looking at the stats that I was mentioned earlier. You know, Wonderwall 
hit number eight on the Billboard 100. Okay, that's that's good. Top ten okay, in America. Nothing good. wrong with that. Easily they're the highest ever. Uh, Don't look back in anger. Got to 55. And shock of the lightning in 2008. <laughs> got to 93. And that's it. That's it. See, I'm that's long it. gone by that point. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. How that goes. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, there's, there's other, there's mainstream rock. There's, there's, you know, you, you do airplay and yeah, champagne supernova gets in the top 10, live forever gets into the top 10 and, and you yes. know, don't go away. Supersonic. Those are top 40 kind of hits. So people were hearing them, but it's, it's not like over here. It's like, and they would go straight to number one, but they'd be two weeks and they'd be number one or they fly right up there so it's just kind of different culturally but the fact of the matter is these are fantastic songs that they're making and they don't have an all-star team right i mean by the time they got to don't uh, uh, to uh, don't believe the truth okay gem archer's in he's fantastic mm-hmm. he also looks good it kind of looks like a young paul mccartney right <laughs> you got zach starkey in on the drums He's the yeah. best there is of his generation. You got Andy Bell in there, who's kind of what Jackson calls a utility infielder. He plays the bass, he plays guitar, he plays keyboard, he can yeah. sing, you know, he can do all this, to give them all these amazing textures. Sure, by then they can make whatever they want, but Tony McCarroll was kind of never up to it. You know, <laughs> I think Giggsy was a good guy and he could play, but he wasn't ready to be a rock star, you know, and even eventually Bonehead couldn't really keep up with the whole lifestyle and all that. So they made this amazing record, but they didn't have all the pieces of the car really put together, to be honest with you. No, no, and I think that was part of the, the charm of the band because it was like, they were a bunch of friends. They weren't musos that, that gathered or um, I speak to people in the past and they answer the, the adverts on Melody Maker and they all get together and that's that's one band form, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. These seemed like a bunch of friends who picked up instruments and Noel started strumming and said, oh, this one sounds good. And it just kind of hit a nerve and, and it worked. And like you said, that that is the main lineup. I think Alan White in there instead of Tony McCarroll because he just mm-hmm. wasn't any good for um and that's even an interesting one the whole Al- alan white coming in because he's the younger brother of steve white of um style council so paul weller and it was paul weller that recommended alan to noel gallagher so ah. it's like oh there's a nice little celebrity twist there so but that, that was the band and i think that was the problem as well after be here now i think the next album standing on the shoulder of giant well, i don't know why it's just the one it's yeah. a strange thing to say but then that's what they named it i think by that point the lineup had changed and even the, the logo had changed and mm-hmm. uh, do you know what i mean the, it, the band had changed and i don't mean that in a bad way it just it just felt different it wasn't what it was those first three albums for me were oasis what followed mm-hmm. was then i don't know it was mark two it was all liam's voice was gone they, they got to the well, point big business at that point other. right i mean like the train has yeah, to keep going it. right yeah so and, uh, are you familiar are you familiar with the term jump the shark? I am. Yes. Yes. Okay. Funzy. So it, yeah. Well, exactly. And, <laughs> and in the United States, it's, it's kind of used, it's almost thought of as derogatory, but it's yeah. really not. It's like, it's the apex. And after you quote unquote, jump the shark, it's not that it's bad, but it's never as good as it will. It will never be as good as it was at this point in time. Would you say that like that Nebworth show was like kind of the apex of where they were? Cause I remember, I think bonehead said something like, Maybe we should have just shot the rockets off and said, you know, good night, drop the good mics, night. and that was it. 
because yeah, it was never it would never be the same way again and and that's what i kind of feel like it's not that they're bad it's just that was the time when they were kings of the world and then everything else was kind of a never the same trying to recapture that yeah. i don't know like it was just a different band like you i said. think yeah i think you've, you, you hit on something quite quite interesting there i think for me as a fan i would hold on to just when be here now had been released i think again I, it's been panned and a lot of people don't like it and there's there are, there are some poor songs on the record but i think at that point they were at their peak because there was that gap between what's the story we've got nebworth we've got everything they are it's almost like the drum roll the drum roll it's drum roll drum roll drum roll and then being now came out was the was the symbol and then it fell off i'd say just after the okay. release because mm -hmm. i remember queuing up outside the shop at half eight in the morning waiting to get the single because by then you didn't have youtube and all that sort of stuff where you get sneak peeks it wasn't released it was it was on the radio that morning when we were driving to get it, it was the first time we'd heard it so it was me and my friend and we literally did as teenagers queue up outside the, the, the shop to buy a copy and they literally opened it just for everyone to go and buy that nobody was in there to buy anything but right do you know what i mean mm -hmm. and we went home and we put it on and we played it on repeat and repeat and we I can remember sitting and writing the lyrics out by hand, trying to work out what he'd said and being blown away because I, I still do think that is one of their best songs. I, I love that song so much. I love the textures and the, even the video to it, I think is brilliant with the helicopters over the top and the military feel to it and things like that, I think. Yeah. Um, so for, for me, I would say that that was the, their apex. When they brought that single out, everyone, because that was universally loved, I think that was a great single. And then it kind of, that was it. The moment had gone after that. Well, it, so... I, I parallel them a little bit, even though they're completely different, to Def Leppard. In that, Def Leppard is huge in the United States, but they really yes. have a hard time getting arrested over here. But also, mm -hmm. Hysteria, which was a diamond seller in America, it also had, because they had seven, eight singles off of that, they had to have all these B-sides. And they did. They had fantastic B-sides. We talk about with our buddy Neil from Def Lep Pod, how they essentially have a couple of albums here. Okay? <laughs> Just like they had a, two albums, basically, with What's the Story, Morning Glory. And if you get the anniversary, it's three CDs, because they've also got some covers and some great stuff on there. But the difference is, Def Leppard had been together a decade, and they basically had four years to write Hysteria, after Pyromania because of the car accident and everything that was going on with them. Whereas Oasis, this is our second album. The first album was awesome, has, you know, killer rock and roll songs on it. Then we just step up and make two, two and a half records worth of amazing material, sprinkling them out with singles over a couple years. And then, yeah, well, you get to be here now and you take the best off of that. Well, suddenly I feel like all of a sudden the, the cupboard's a little bare for Noel. Like, he had this incredible run, there's no doubt about it. But then all of a sudden, it's like, well, what else do I have to do? None of you other people can write anything. None of you other can play the way I do. And plus, I'm rich. I've got my money. So I can put out kind of whatever, right? I mean, I don't know if that's really his attitude, but that can creep in. He doesn't have to sell 10 million of the last record. He sold 30 million of the last, right? You know, so I don't know. It's, it's tough to say. It is. It's really be, difficult. Sorry. I was going to say, that's going to be a little irritating too if you're Noel, because, you know, again, you've got pressure from the record company. You got pressure from the fans. You got pressure from the band. They're like, okay. What do you got? What's next? Yeah. Guy? What do you mean? What? I, what okay. So now I'm, it, it, I have to do all of this now. Okay, cool. Well, maybe I'll just pull you guys along. That's got to be a little, you know, at, at some point in time, you start to start to think in your, in your mind, I can do this by myself. 
And yeah. and I remember when um, very early he was thinking that I think Don't Look Back in Anger came out, and I remember thinking, uh oh, oh boy, now he's going to sing. Not only is he going to sing lead, which we've seen from other bands. You know, we love the Keith Richards songs that he sings, but they were never really singles. This was a big single, and I remember yeah. even in the video, you've got Liam just kind of maybe I'll sit <laughs> shaking by the, the tambourine. Yeah. yeah, maybe I'll shake the tambourine. Uh oh, yeah. So you get this, you get this deal where it's like, yeah, that, that causes cracks in the band too. And I think that was, you know, we we did a whole show on Get Back with the Beatles. You could see how, you know, maybe if there was a low spot, okay, all of a sudden George comes in with a song, or you know, Ringo's doing something. Yeah. You got these other guys who are just you're gonna work today, or what's the deal? It, it, it's gotta be very stressful <laughs> for him. And and to your point, Mac, yeah, I'm already rich. I don't need any I don't need this, I don't need this headache. I don't need this this yeah. hard time. I'm already the biggest star in the UK. It's like what what more do you want me to do? Sort of thing. It is interesting right. to bring up the whole the, the concept of a one-man band in a sense. I mean if if it wasn't for Liam and his incredible iconic look and stage presence, I mean, right. when we say stage presence, he wasn't the sort of guy that ran around and jumped on the riser or, or do you know what I mean? He was just, he stood there in his Adidas tracksuit and just glared at people, but that was his stage presence. That was, that was just incredible to look at and, and very visually iconic and things like that. And the voice obviously as well, but um, just made me think of, I spoke to Andrew Farris from NXS recently. Now mm -hmm. he had obviously Michael Hutchins to fall back on, but Andrew Farris was the main songwriter. He was the right. musical direction of it all. And Michael Hutchins came up with the lyrics. Um, so at least they had the two of them to bounce off. Whereas, like you said there, Noel, he's, he's been there. He's done it. He's, he's got the, the multi-platinum selling discs on his wall. He's got every bank account full of cash. He's got right. girls dripping off his arm. He's got every tabloid newspaper wanting to know what he's what he's eating for breakfast. It's, right. it's like, what more do I need to do to, to, to satisfy anything? And it is interesting to see where it did go down from there. I mean, you mentioned him singing. I was never a big fan of his singing vocally. I mean, really? Liam is not. Yes, Liam is not... Um, a stereotypical singer he's not got a beautiful voice but i think he carries the band better than noel okay um and i think when noel started to bring in sorry, started to bring in two or three different songs of his on the albums that's mm -hmm. when again it was like no no again that turned me off because really for me he was he wasn't the vocalist i liked liam being the vocalist i liked him being the focal point on the stage he was he had the gruff voice whereas noel was a bit whinier i was never as as big a fan of him if i'm being honest although the the, the song they did together acquiesce was, acquiesce. was fantastic oh my god yeah. the greatest b-side in the history of mankind <laughs> and to hear them together but of course that's when i kind of first saw it i used to think it was so arrogant and she of liam he would just stand there. When he's singing, he's singing his heart up in that microphone. And then when it's Noel's turn, he doesn't keep the crowd up. He doesn't shake the tambourine. He stands there and stares blankly. And, and now I'm like, that's pretty rock star, man. That's pretty <laughs> Like, I'm not singing. You know, you're not looking at me. Fine, I'll just stand here like a statue. Like, I'm doing anything else right now. But to but me, the I, thing is, even even live, I mean, th that that first gig that I saw them, that was the last song they did. That was the end of the encore. And even though Noel was singing, you were still looking at Liam because right. you were waiting to see stage. what he was going to yeah. do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but see, but that's the problem, though, because that's his job. His job is to be the singer. And now you're taking that away from yes. him. You've got uh, the, the way that really works in other bands is if you also do like I also play the guitar. Yes. Mm -hmm. like we, were, we just talked about the cars uh, recently and you had you had Okasik and Ben Orr. Yeah. And so when you're not singing, hey, I'm just playing the rhythm guitar like I do on any other one or I'm playing the bass. Yeah, I, I'm the rock star. And now I just 
I or at so. least with Fleetwood Mac, Stevie, although she couldn't play an instrument, she did a lot of the harmony and the backing vocals and things right, like that, didn't right. she? She could yeah. shake the tambourine, you know, yeah. 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 <laughs> and twirl the black dress and things, yeah. Oh, she's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I was going to ask, I was gonna ask too? You were talking about how when they came out, how many people started a band after that in their garage and sang or at least tried to sing and tried to look like Liam with the microphone up, the, the hands behind their back. Yeah. I'm going to bet there were a lot of kids oh, trying to emulate that. Still are. Like I said, yeah, we, <laughs> we, we started a band on the back of that. We did my, myself. There was, there was five of us. And, and um, after we broke up, two of them went on to form another band that played Glastonbury and were on radio one and things like that. So um, they that? did quite well for themselves, my guitarist and uh, bass player. Um, unfortunately I went and did media studies at university. So yeah, we all take, <laughs> different paths don't we uh, but yeah to answer your question everyone picked up the guitar i mean i was a drummer before that but oasis came out and oh i fancy giving that thing a go with strings over there and um i taught myself like i said earlier several oasis songs it doesn't take long you only have to move a couple of fingers half the time True. so it's not wonderwall it's it's, it's it's really really simple so yeah. um yeah to answer your question everyone was turning up uh, at college and things like that and we all had the the, the bowl cuts and um the adidas track suits and yeah it was it was it was the look yeah yeah and eventually they learned how to deal with their eyebrows and separate them and keep them <laughs> tweezed and stuff and you know and they had the bod look and they, they look great but part of the reason i wanted to do this now paul versus maybe later in the year is both the boys are doing tours here in june uh, of the mm -hmm. uk and and i think liam's going into further afield in europe but uh noel is doing shows with the high flying birds around the uk and lovely liam is not only playing the etihad uh one night but he's going back to nebworth for a couple of shows um so uh, do you have any interest in seeing any of those and you know who would you rather see if you could only see one of them live who are you going to see um, again it'd, it'd be liam because i think he is the sound of oasis i mean a guitar player can play a guitar whereas liam can only sound like liam right and i think liam was the sound of oasis noel did play up here two years ago i mean i live in the highlands of scotland so i live pretty mm -hmm. remote but uh noel did come up a couple of years ago and I, I didn't get tickets um really and that's yeah i don't like i said to you before i think by the early 2000s late 90s i think oasis had passed me by i think i'd, I'd outgrown that right um if liam came i probably would because i think he's a bit more open to playing the the oasis stuff whereas noel kind of just did two or three if that makes sense in his set list. And that's the only reason I'd go and see something like that. I, I hear you. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to see Oasis a few times, kind of the don't believe the truth in the, the subsequent tour mm -hmm. that they did on that. I've seen Noel's High Flying Birds a few times. I, they even opened for Snow Patrol in America. Um, <laughs> I didn't catch wow. Snow Patrol. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> what? You know, I was like, I didn't even stay for Snow Patrol. I didn't stay for one song. Once Noel was gone, I'm like, all right, come on, honey, get your stuff, we're going, you know. Um, but I, I saw him headline a few times too. His band is great, he, mm -hmm. he, and he has grown, I think, as a songwriter. His first album was very Oasis-ish, but he's worked with a lot of different people. He has women in his band now to give it a lot of great yeah. flavor and texture. He, he has evolved a bit, and when he does an interview, it's only like every like 12th word is fuck or something like that now. You know? so he, he's, <laughs> he's matured. More, yes, yeah. he's a lot more articulate. He realizes, yes, I live in a $25 million mansion. I probably <laughs> ought to use better vocabulary once in a while. But So my thing is, I love Noel, and I wanted to take my daughter to see him. He is playing in London, so we're doing that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to Nebworth 
to see <laughs> anybody. I'm too. I'm 50 years old. I'm too old to muck around in the mud. If I could go with the band on the helicopter, fly in, sit side stage, and then fly out with them, fine, guys. If you want me to come, we can do that. But other than that, I'm not dealing with all that nonsense. You've got to be kidding no. me. <laughs> 100,000 punters in the mud who've been drinking for 15 hours? I don't think so, yeah. And you've and you've got somebody on stage who you know is going to rile them up, so it's just going to be it's going to be a mess. Now I'd love to see Liam. There's no doubt about it, you know. And I like BDI's first record. It was kind of one of those rare situations that when a band breaks up, you actually get two decent units out of it. A lot of times, a band breaks up like, and that's it. The singer yeah. sounds right, but he can't put the songs together about the band. The band's not right without the singer. But I, you know, I thought BDI had some great songs, and then Noel put together a great band, and they did well, you know. So. But, you know, Noel now, I mean, it's, it's a lot like Oasis now. I mean, Gem's back in the band, you know, that, you know they, they're using some of the same keyboard guys around, you know. If you ever needed a pinch hit drummer, Zach can always fill in when he's not with the Who. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like everyone's kind of followed him, but I still feel like the kids are all about Liam. If you're under 25, if you're under 30, and you're going to see one of these two, it's Liam without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. 100% agree. 100% agree. And I just want to say this is this is obviously my personal feelings. I'm not trying to to say I'm courting for, for the rest of the UK here. It's just um, the whole Britpop thing tired me out of it. So by the time the 2000s came, and, and like you said, I, I probably would have been a good gig to go and see Noel up here a couple of years ago. But it was just, I don't know. It's like I've, I've done that. I've done that. I've been there. I've done that. I understand outgrowing bands in the 80s, early 90s. I was way into R.E.M., you know, yeah. then Automatic for the People and Monster come out. Well, those are huge hits. Everybody loves them, right? Except me. I, you know, I had evolved past that. You know, I, I'm glad they did well. I'm glad other people enjoyed the music. But I stopped, you know, at out of time, you know, and glad they went on. But for me, it was over. See, we flip flop again there. I was I was huge into New Adventures and Monster and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, big fan of R.E.M. Saw them a few times when they came over here. Saw them on the banks of Loch Lomond. Actually, they did a big, big gig here, and on the banks of Loch Lomond. That sounds twenty odd years ago. That was, that was fantastic. Yeah, really good. Cool. Well, anything else you want to add there, Jackson? Well, I was going to say the the uh, you know you're talking about the two different camps now. I think the the real attraction for Liam is the 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 rock star vibe that he gives out. But he's also the one of the two that's always if you ask about Oasis, he's like, hey, you know, just give me a call anytime, you know, mm -hmm. ready to go. Whereas Noel's like, yeah, next question, please. <laughs> right. And and I actually saw Liam on some interview. It might have been Graham Norton, but I couldn't swear to it. And you know, he said, oh, they offered you, you know, it, it, you know, Noel said it would have to be a hundred million dollars or something like that for him to think about it. And Liam said, you know, the funny thing, and so Graham Norton asked, so what's the problem? What, what's going on? What's the deal? And Liam said, it's 50% me and 50% Noel. But if you ask Noel, it's 100% me. <laughs> and so that's, and that's the deal is that I think, I think that's what it, it, the attraction to him still is, is he's the one that's still kind of like, you know, it, this flag gets smaller and smaller every year, but he's still waving it like he would yeah. be up for it, where I don't think. No, I don't think Noel would be because I just think he doesn't need if they anything. ever got back together again, if they if, if the Oasis ever said we're playing, we're, we got this big tour plan ready to go. You better get tickets to the first show because there's probably not going to be a second. <laughs> one. Yes. Yeah, 100 <laughs> percent. And I think, to be honest, they probably would get 100 million <laughs> easy yeah. if, they, if they announced probably. the tour tomorrow. So easy. Yeah. I, I would go as somebody that hadn't listened to the band for, for 20 years. I would I would certainly be out there getting tickets and wanting to see that experience again just to just to relive it but yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting maybe it's because noel is he was the centerpiece of the band 
musical direction and everything like that. Because it's the same with Dire Straits. Mark Knopfler is is Dire Straits, but um, obviously John Elsley and everyone else would, would in a heartbeat get back together and do right. it again. But Mark's always said, no, not happening. So. Mark doesn't need it. The, the main reason bands get back together after so long is because someone needs the money. Mark Knopfler yes. yeah. does not need the money. And Noel Gallagher <laughs> not only doesn't need the money, but he doesn't need the hassle. He has a nice life. He's making the music he wants. He plays the gigs he wants to do. He sells records just fine. And now, for what? For $100 million, I got to deal with this nonsense for another two years? I, I don't think so. But I do think at some point, it's going to happen. Even if it's just like, we're going to do Nebworth 2025 or 2030, whatever it is. I, I, and I doubt it would be for a good cause. It would just be for them to do it. You <laughs> know, like, yeah. like, like Pink Floyd gets back together for G8 or whatever, you know, or they, they get together to make a new single to help Ukraine. That's their thing. I, I just feel like Oasis would be, a, okay, this is it. We're going to do three last shows at Nev or whatever it is. You're going to pay us whatever you pay us, and yeah. that's it. And I think at some point, that's probably what will happen. But a, an album, a tour around the world, I, I don't know about that. No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I mean, fingers crossed it, do, it does happen because I think it's something that would be embraced. Oh, I think yeah. we'd all love to see the fireworks. I think we'd all... I, I'm keen to, to know how often they've been in the same room together because obviously they're brothers, they've got family. How often do they actually get in the same vicinity? Or is it, it, it must have happened at some point in the last... 10, 15 years, surely. Dude, not even at Christmas. They don't, wow. I mean, like, they don't even go see their mother together. And they have kids <laughs> who are cousins, and they, I don't even think they see each other, to be honest with you. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, funerals, surely they must turn up for things like that. I don't know. It's just. Well, they might, they might go into their father's funeral, from what I understand, but I don't <laughs> think he's passed away yet. So, <laughs> families, you can't pick them, can you? No. No, that's right. <laughs> well, Paul, this has been a blast, you know, talking about my favorite band of the last 30 years, Oasis. Foo Fighters would be a, a close second, certainly my favorite American band of the last 30 years, but I just find Oasis so much more listenable. And, and start to back of their records. I can put on Don't Believe the Truth or What's the Story, Morning Glory, and just let it go and let it repeat even, yeah. you know, so... I'm happy to finally get a real UK fan, someone who lived it, someone who loved it, and could teach us about it, you know? <laughs> well, thank you for letting me on the show. I mean, I'll be honest, I had not listened to Oasis purposefully. It's not, I've heard songs here and there, but I've not put on a record from Oasis for, for decades. So I did last night sit and, and, and go through all the songs on Spotify. I thought while I was working, I just put it on in the background. It was just playing one by one. And the records are fantastic. That, that first album for me still probably would get into my top 10 of all time because it is just and it's not just the singles it's things like slide away and columbia and bring it on down They're my big mouth I love, I, I love you know them. yeah so but again i got to standing on the shoulders of giants and it was like i got a couple of songs into that and i was like oh is that the time right <laughs> so <laughs> i guess <laughs> but but honestly like that's that's what we we love about doing the show i mean yeah the two of us and I've got a I've got a coworker who I was like, hey, if you want to listen, go ahead and listen. And he we did a, a show about Led Zeppelin four, and he was like, you know what? I haven't listened to that record in probably thirty years. Yeah. And I put it on, and I'm, it's like an old friend coming over. Hey, yes. I remember this. So I mean, that that's really what we love about this is is either you know reintroducing this stuff or finding something new. And 
because music was such a big part and still is of our lives. You know, it just kind of drives your, your day. Yeah. It really is fun to connect with people like yourself. And, you know, I've, we've, I've never met you before, but I just spent an hour talking to you about a common love that we have. This is really fantastic. Yeah. Echo it hundred percent. I mean, uh, music is something that unites people and it's something that it doesn't matter what background you've got. I mean, you can share the love of a band, a song, an album. And, and, and it is some interesting when you talk about some of the big albums, there, Led Zeppelin 4. I was trying to think, when was the last time I listened to Led Zeppelin 4? Mm -hmm. We know it inside and out. We could probably put it on now and sing every song, but I, right. I can't remember the last time I actually put it on and listened to it. It's, yeah, maybe that needs to be rectified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, no, and it's good to have folks to enjoy this with. You know, I, I recall when I got into Oasis, I want to say it was about 2001 or so. Mm -hmm. Call it a Saturday night. I've been out with some friends drinking, not, not getting after it, but I've been having a few beers. Gets late. I'm like, all right, midnight, I'm going to go home. I'm driving home, and I'm pretty sure it's Don't Look Back in Agra comes on the radio, <laughs> okay? And I thought it was Oasis, but I didn't really know because I didn't know Oasis that well. And I'm jamming this Don't Look Back in Agra. I'm like, God, this song's amazing. And, of course, they don't always tell you, that was Oasis with Don't Look yeah. Back in Agra. You have to kind of, oh, what was that? But in 2001 was the heady days of Napster when you could just go home and download whatever you wanted. <laughs> so I was up to, like, three in the morning downloading all sorts of Oasis, trying to find which song it was, Don't Look Back in Agra. And then from there I started to listen. And then Jackson and I had kind of – We'd grown apart during that time. You know, not, we didn't have a falling out or anything. It's just we're not, we don't write letters. Not true. We're, not, yeah. we're not social media people. He moved from his hometown. I moved from my hometown. You know, we didn't, we didn't have each other's stuff anymore. And I remember getting into Oasis and then getting Don't Believe the Truth and how awesome it was to me, but not having him to say, Jackson, do you know Oasis? Have you heard this Don't Believe the Truth? So <laughs> that's, that's why I'm glad now we've got the show so we can kind of share all this together again because when we were in college except for maybe occasionally going to class that's all we did was drink beer and listen to records <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect to me and just one one quick thing we didn't mention uh, very much of i know we, we brushed it quickly but but wonderwall mm. um in terms of i mean a huge hit in the us you said it was top top 10 i think number eight i think you said it was yeah it, that that was the song that seemed to cover all bases it reached all generations because because my granddad because I, like I said i lived with my grandparents mm -hmm. so my granddad knew it my my mum knew the song and now uh, i've got a teenage kids who, who know the song as well they sing it they love the song it, it, it seems to be one of those songs although it's been parodied although it's been on the radio far too often and it's one of those songs that probably annoys a lot of people it still is an absolutely brilliant song when you break it down and you if you sit in a, in a small box like i am in here in my studio and you put mm -hmm. wonderwall on and you, you give it the chance you'll fall in love with it again because it is a fantastic song yeah and i think it's what it's the song that if you said oasis and someone's like i've never heard of that band before you put that yes. oh yeah i know that song yeah, yeah that's, that's the one. one it yeah you're right it, it's accessible that if you listen to the lyrics you know it, it they're not not nonsensical but they're they it, it's just enough where it kind of draws you in and yeah that is a great song yeah as a lyricist i think noel gallagher is is underrated and i know sometimes it's because i didn't like champagne supernova at the time because you're talking about where were you were while we were getting high i'm like no you, you you're supposed to say that in code you know you, you don't just come out and say <laughs> stuff like that now it's a country song because in a country song you, you can't say i'm standing next to a mountain chopping down with the end of my hand you know they, they don't know what that is you say i see my beat up old tractor it's broke down you have to look out your window and see something and say it 
it. And it's like we're sitting here getting high. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta hide that somehow. And that's like, yeah, that's not that you know clever. But now I, I look at the way he wrote. Obviously, the music and the chords are brilliant. But the way he wrote his lyrics, I think, is top notch. I, I think he's one of the best of all time. It's interesting because even even some of the cheesier songs, likes of uh, "She's Electric," mm-hmm. it was never a single. But the radio station I worked for, it played. Um, the best songs of the last 10 years, it was it was a current, but they used to drop in every couple of hours something from the 90s, and they'd play She's Electric, even though it wasn't a single. And I think that is because it is easily accessible and because, like you said, one in five, ten households or whatever it was had a copy of that record, so you'd know mm-hmm. that song, despite the fact it was never a single. For me, it's on that album, Hello, I feel like they should open every show with hello. And it's not hello, it's hello. It's got this charge to it, that thumping bass into it. It's got a little nastiness to it. And you listen to the lyrics, you know, you wipe the shit from your shoes and, and that kind of thing. It's a fantastic Oasis song, you know, but it's not just hello. It's, it's you know, it's like get ready, buckle up, we're coming at you. you yeah. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Absolutely. The other great thing too is they, if you go back and listen to it, they, they don't rip off people but they just kind of like you know the the wink wink like you know you were talking about uh don't look back in anger that's imagine at the beginning that and you say so for a second you think that's what it is and then they go into the their song but it's like the you know hey john lennon we love you you know that you know we wouldn't be here without you yeah and i was thinking about go, going back and listen to this like cigarettes and alcohol that's t-rex, that's t-rex yeah like yes yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah 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 it's their song but it's it's just like that like that you know you know where we came from and so there's a lot of it like if you listen to it it's even if maybe you haven't heard it before it's very familiar yes. like there's a familiar like do I know this? Familiar, no, but familiar. it sounds... Yeah. I think it is uh, quite yeah. interesting. They've only been taken to court, is it a couple of times, maybe three times for, for different songs? One of them being the, um, was it Stevie Wonder? They, they, one of their B-sides, Stepping Out or Step Out Tonight, or something like that. Is um, They had to put Wonder, as right. Wonder et al, I think they put on the on the comments on the end. Yeah, but yeah. They, for, for how close they sail to the wind, they've not actually been, been pulled back many times. That's right. Yeah. But I think it's the difference between copying the song like we like we had that whole thing like uh what was it that song blurred lines a couple a uh, couple years ago and that was a ripoff of the marvin gay song there's you can't tell me it wasn't but i think oasis is it has always been better about like i said just giving you the wink here's what we love yeah. and then doing their own thing like if that piano part in don't look back if they had done that the whole time yeah they would have gotten sued but it's only <laughs> right at the beginning where it's like it's, it's just like the it's almost like holding a picture of john yes. up and then put it's like down. paying homage isn't it to the correct to the, to yeah the, the exactly artists, yeah. all right paul well, it's been nice you, meeting you action yeah. and um nice to meet you thank you yeah no problem at all Well, that wraps up our discussion of Oasis with Paul Stevenson of Vintage Rock Pod, a good man, and now a new friend of the show, a guy who really knows his stuff and has that smooth radio voice. It's a show I've really wanted to do for a long time, guys. I mean, a lot of our show is about the difference between being a UK rock fan and a US rock fan, and why are some bands popular in one place, but they just don't catch on in another. And to me, Oasis is a glaring example of that. You could not be any bigger than Oasis was in the UK in the 90s. And really, still to this day, as both the Gallaghers individually are touring in the month of June in the UK. And having Paul on to discuss what it was like to be here and to be a young man, a teenager, who is in the midst of all that, 
who couldn't wait to get out and buy the new album or buy the new single when it came out. And going to see them live meant everything to him. That's just a show I wanted to do for a long time, and until I found Paul, I didn't really have the right person to give us the perspective that we desired. So thank you, Paul, for that, and make sure you check out Paul on Vintage Rock Pod. I think he's at Vintage Rock Pod on Twitter, and he's got the daily This Day Rock show. It's really only about five, six minutes out of your day, and it's a great way to start the day. It's a great way just to get caught up on whose birthday it is, what's happening in the world of rock, and to hear something from a guest, maybe somebody famous, maybe someone from one of your favorite bands, or maybe even some silly American like me. And as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? Please let us know. You can tweet us or DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. Make sure you download and subscribe Anywhere you get your podcast, be it Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Play. Good Pods has been very good to us. As I'm recording this, it turns out we're number five overall in all music. We're number four in music commentary and number three in music history. And we appreciate the love and support of Good Pods. It's a great place to interact with podcasters and figure out the podcasts that are best for you. Now, once again, I can't really preview what we're going to be talking about next week because there's so much going on right here for the wolf right now we've got a lot of fun interviews lined up that i know you guys are going to love we've got some concerts coming up that we want to talk about and review for you so you're just going to have to stay tuned all right make sure you download subscribe and again folks if you're thinking about it hey give us a positive review Okay, it helps us find more rock fans like you helps spread the word of the show and if we get word of it or if you send it to us we might just read it on the show. So until next week, rock and rollers, to all of you all around the world, be cool and stay safe.